gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. We'll experiment and work to find some interesting content. I look forward to your thoughts, comments, and ideas. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with Professor Patrick Rail, who's a professor of history at Bowdoin College. We'll discuss his use of historical games to teach history. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. of History at the prestigious Bowdoin College in Maine. He was awarded a Ph.D. in 1995 in American History from the University of California, Berkeley. African-American history is Patrick's specialty, and he is the author of numerous essays and books. Today we're going to talk about his seminar class, Historical Simulations, in which he works to answer the questions, Can board games teach history? Is it possible to analyze them as historical interpretations? What would such an analysis reveal about both history and the way it is represented in pop culture? Which game mechanics or approaches to design seem to be better able to promote historical arguments? And what factors may impede the representation of the past in games? The seminar explores the past while addressing these questions. It examines six topics in history and plays one game related to each of them. Topics include the Age of Exploration and Discovery, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, Frontier Exploration, Slavery, and the American Civil War. Games used in past seminars include Colonial, Europe's Empires Overseas, Liberty or Death, the American Insurrection, Founding Fathers, Freedom, the Underground Railroad, Lewis and Clark, the Expedition, and Divided Republic by my good friend Alex Bagasy. We'll open with my question about where Patrick came up with the idea to use games to teach us. Essentially, it came down to... Uh, uh, an opportunity to merge my gamer self with my professor self. Um, I've loved both history and games for a long, long time. Um, you know, one of those endeavors, history <clears throat> is something that I wound up being able to make a career out of. Uh, it's a lot harder to make a career out of games, sure. as you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I've been an avid gamer since uh, since the, the late 70s and 80s and the high school age and that whole era when we, we, we shirked from doing homework so that we could go into each other's basements after school every day and play. And um, that's what really turned me on to history. More than anything I was learning in AP European uh, was playing Kingmaker or, um, you know, Dauntless and Air, Air Force and, you know, all these other games. And uh, it just, as I got into this career, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm sufficiently well established that I can call a few of my own shots. And I just thought, um, gee, I'm, I'm playing historically themed games all the time, and I'm teaching history all the time, and there's got to be a way I can put those together. That's where this came from. You know, I remember uh, I started with Battle of the Bulge, the original Avalon Hill version. 
And um, I remember looking at the map for the first time as I was considering the game and my, my friend Andy Nutgrass was teaching and uh, looking at Bastogne and seeing the, all the roads come in and out of Bastogne and how critical it is to the game. And, uh, and, and it, for the first time, it told me how important it was, but it was a war game that communicated that to me as a, as a young 14-year-old. Yeah, it's it's incredibly powerful, and you know there there are there are so many ways that people uh, encounter the past in our society, and uh, the classroom experience is really a, just a small fraction. We read historical novels, we watch historical feature films like Gangs of New York or The Patriot all the time. Um, uh, and I think that that board games with the, the sort of revolution and the expansion of this market is becoming a, a more and more uh, important site of uh, really historical construction and uh, the way um, history works into our popular consciousness. Board games are becoming an important part of that. Um, I usually, uh, I regularly teach courses on historical feature films, um, both because uh, it's an engaging topic for students, but uh, I think it's also important to help coach students in thinking about um, what popular history looks like. What kinds of uh, critical skills do we need to think about the kinds of movies that we see or the historical fiction that we read? Um, and those are tools that scholars have developed and teach regularly. Uh, board games have come pretty late to that party, but they are um, undoubtedly an important and growing influencer of popular historical consciousness. So I think we, you know, it's time that we take the same kinds of critical approaches to those other media and uh, apply them to board games as well. Certainly. Now, did you carry this uh, passion for board games through your studies, uh, undergrad and grad? I think you Cal, you're a Cal Berkeley graduate. That's right. Yeah, was, um, uh, I, I sort of I had the trajectory of a lot of other uh, folks from our generation, uh, sort of born in the '60s, shirked a lot during school, uh, <laughs> you know, high school playing games, and um, sort of set a lot of things aside uh, in graduate school, and then you know had a family and sort of that traditional trajectory of. Just couldn't find time to play. And then in the mid 90s, and for me, it was sort of late 90s, sort of recognizing that this this hobby had changed and that there was a whole new set of products that were out there, a whole new set of games for us to consume that were sort of made for, for people like us, people who might not have a whole weekend to uh, blow on Terrible Swift Sword, but were really up for three or four hours of good brain burning fun. The uh, same thing happened to me. I left the the uh, board games behind in college, and then focused on work and uh, and marriage and kids. And then as my kids started to leave, I rediscovered games and was astounded at what was available, and and the change. Right, I, th I think so many of the games that when we were young were two player games, and so many of the games now allow us to sit around the table with friends and enjoy uh, prodding and, and celebrating those friends uh, in, in groups of four, five, six uh, that, yeah. that, that I just didn't, didn't see when I was playing the original SPI Avalon Hill games. So I think it's a tremendous development. 
It's true, and I mean there were those multiplayer games when we were uh, when we were younger. They you know tended to be less things that were traditional war games and more things like Cosmic Encounter, but the market really wasn't built around uh, satisfying that kind of consumer demand. And um, uh, so you know what we got to enjoy there in the in the '90s and the aughts was this resurgence of new designs that were really made for people like us. Um, and you know we haven't mentioned anything about playing computer games in that right. um, stretch of uh, you know the out there in the 40 days in the desert without board games. but I think there's something about uh, what happened in the computer game industry that um, sort of paradoxically made the board game industry take off the way it did. I mean there's something about about uh, we got used to complex procedures. We got used to systems uh, recording all kinds of measures. So, I mean, I think a game like Through the Ages wouldn't really have been comprehensible to us in the 80s or the 90s. It sort of took a couple decades of playing around with uh, with digital games to make those kinds of mechanics a little more readable to us. Right, and it took it took a separate development center, right? I mean, the the German development uh, of gaming was a very different uh, development in that uh, war games were frowned upon, if not regulated to some extent, and right. so you had a development of a very different kind of game, and uh, yeah, and so that Would developed independently and then bled over to our market. Yeah, and I think it raised some really interesting kind of historical questions. The uh, the when the, this new generation of games came out, as you say, they were obviously less focused on direct conflict and military simulations, um, and they, I, I, you know, because they were sort of designed as family experiences, they took on themes that felt a little more nostalgic, a little more comfortable. Games like you know themes like exploration or um, you know medieval town building this kind of thing, um, but in in there, uh, not that they're intended to be do, do nefarious work or anything, but there are these are these are historical themes that can be troubled. You know, um, games about exploration and colonization are are not simple nostalgic motifs. They involve their own kinds of um, of violence and historical conflict. So, um, I think what happened with the Eurogame Revolution was that it developed a broad range of tastes among the public for a range of different themes, but it didn't necessarily do that with a lot of critical apparatus around it. So in moving away from uh, war and direct conflict as themes, we've sort of been left with uh, another set of themes that requires uh, a little bit of critical scrutiny, not enough to make it all horrible and not fun, but just so that we stay on our toes. Certainly, and, and certainly in the context of teaching history uh, it's certainly important I, and so let's make the transition to to the class i'm i'm interested in uh, the format of the class and 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 what you do to uh, uh, to conduct this seminar using board games sure yeah <clears throat> essentially what what we did was uh, we have a 14 week semester here and um uh, I took 12 of those weeks and divided them up into six two-week beats. And uh, these are arranged chronologically. They cover roughly the first half of American history. 
We, so we look at colonization, revolutionary era, constitutional convention, frontier exploration, the struggle over slavery and the coming of the civil war. And um, for each of these, we've got two weeks. Uh, I begin by introducing the game and introducing the topic. Uh, so I spend some class time actually teaching the game. I thought that was important to do. Um, we read primary and secondary historical sources on whatever historical theme we're exploring. And uh, we read some in game studies as well. Um, there's this amazing explosion of scholarship and game studies over the last two decades. And that's helped develop our critical apparatus. And then we have a, uh, a weekly game lab so the course might meet Monday and Wednesday. On Tuesday night, there's a three-hour game lab in the library, and that's where we really do our stuff. So each game gets, uh, I arrange player positions beforehand. We have between two and four tables. Sometimes player positions are shared by more than one student. Um, but we give every game uh, two plays, one to essentially get used to it, and the second to explore it more and actually try to win. Uh, and then we come back into the classroom and we debrief and discuss and it's rinse, wash, repeat. So we get through, uh, we got through the essentially the first half of American history. Students were writing papers. They had to write, I think it was three game reviews and I gave them a, a critical apparatus, a set of rubrics for thinking about those game reviews. Uh, and then they had a final project where they had to reach outside the course material. Um, but uh, that's the basic structure. And I'm, I'm, I was pretty pleased with it. And when I repeat the course in the fall, I think I'll, I'll stick with that basic formula. The students that are going to have to read the rules uh, it would seem, right, uh, you, you can't teach the class during your lab and have an efficient use of time, I would suspect. So the first day we encounter a subject, I will, uh, it takes about half an hour of class time uh, to lay out some basic rules. Um, the reading of rule books is part of the assigned reading of the course. Um, so they are expected to do that on their own, but I also expect them not to feel super comfortable when they begin to play the game. Um, one of the assignments, each student has to be the table leader uh, for one play during the semester. So that is the student who's, who's particularly in charge of making sure that they're on top of the rules for this particular game and for uh, taking care of all the bookkeeping the game requires and, and, uh, and things like that. Um, and I thought that was going to be the biggest challenge would be to simply to get them comfortable enough to play. And it turns out that it's not a challenge at all because these kids are as enthused and as game as you can imagine. And they, um, well, there were moments where they where they felt intimidated by rule books. Uh, it was never to the point where they were not absolutely willing to sit down and give things a try. It was very impressive. That's great. What's the what's the background? Because I noticed that uh, in in the course summary, it mentions that it's useful, if not required, that the student have some board gaming familiarity? Yeah, I was <clears throat> initially I was I was a little concerned because I didn't I didn't really know how many gamers we had here on this little campus of 1700 students. And uh, when we introduced each other during the first day of class, they 
talked about it. Yeah, I, I love games. We grew up playing Boggle and Monopoly in my house. <laughs> Scrabble was big. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't do it in class. But in my head, I'm just smacking my forehead with my palm and thinking, <laughs> oh, this is going to be a long semester. Um, a few of them had actually played some games. Uh, they're, uh, the board game club on campus is the biggest campus club. Um, And so a couple of those students were in there. Um, But it didn't it didn't matter. Like even even the students who were had never done anything more than Scrabble uh, were just remarkably willing to give this a try. Uh, I think it's because their 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 minds are young and supple, but uh, they uh, they they just experienced no sense of intimidation at any of this process. Uh, so I was really, I was really happy with that. And I think we, we made a few converts. That's terrific. So it sounds like it's been well received by the students. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. They, um, uh, on course evaluations, they responded really positively. Uh, I don't think it was anything in particular that I did. It was just the the fact that they they enjoyed the medium, they enjoyed uh, uh, encountering history uh, through that medium. Um, you know, I, w- one of the things that I I tried to be very conscious about was that this had to be uh, a rigorous course. That um, I you know I'd seen the ways that. Um, board games can be implemented in history courses, and I, you know, I, 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 we just don't have the time to be able to play something that is not uh, that can't teach on its own. That that um, uh, I mean, like I, I, I think of a game like uh, the Grizzled, which people sometimes use in World War One classes, and I myself can't figure out how to put enough meat on those bones to consider it worth teaching. Um, there's there's stuff there, but uh, what I'm really looking for is a game that is rich and complex enough to be able to carry a, a historical argument that scholars have helped construct. Um, so I wanted to make sure that, that the experience was rigorous because I needed to justify it both to my colleagues and to myself, that we weren't just sitting around playing games for a semester. Um, and so the students' reactions, I think, kind of reflected that. Um, you know, one kid writing, I learned more about the subject of history and its practice than I thought possible. Another kid wrote, this is one of the most intellectually stimulating classes I've taken at this school. Wow. So, you know, the the response was, was, was pretty positive, And I think the students uh, felt genuinely challenged. Now, what about the response of your peers in the university? You mentioned it briefly. Yeah, the, the, the college has been very supportive. They were, uh, you know, this is a selective liberal arts college that prides itself on teaching and, and they were willing to uh, uh, to put their money where their mouths were uh, and, and help me experiment with this. Um, we bought titles of a bunch of different games. Uh, librarians had to figure out how to catalog these things. I mean, there's this remarkably complex set of problems that this generated that I had no not anticipated at all. But one of the librarians went off to a conference and learned about how you catalog these things. Um, <laughs> Uh, but we, the, the college was super generous with lending us video equipment and helping us record. We had these like student testimonials or a confessional booth that they used to record their play experiences. Um, and so the, the college IT and um, ed tech people were, were super. Um, 
and some of my my colleagues are excited about this and and there are uh, particularly younger colleagues are interested in exploring how um, we can bring games into the college classroom in a range of ways. Uh, we have we have a lot of folks here who do reacting to the past, which is like a in-class historical role-playing system for college classes. Um, so uh, you know, there's there's been some good support. Um, you know, I have to say though that that it it it's a little bit weird going to professional conferences or you know somebody asks you what your next project is and you're you're telling them that you work on on board games <laughs> and uh, you know it's a it's a fairly hidebound profession in a lot of ways and uh, it's not quite ready to understand or make sense of that all the time so it's a little bit of a professional risk doing this but uh, you know thankfully I'm, I'm deep enough into my career that I don't I don't I have the luxury of being able to call a few of my own shots. The challenge for all of us that that play these games and, and think about educating is how do we pull it off at UC San Diego, the, the sheer quantity of students that I have to teach, uh, except for the graduates, which I have very small classes, but the undergraduates, very large classes. It makes, makes it very hard for me to use board games in application. So I'm, I'm still struggling with answering that question. The, the uh, On the other hand, we do have models and games that we, in effect, play that are not necessarily PC games, but are but are systematized, right? This uh, mm -hmm. market market strategy, something we call Markstrat, we use to take a team of students through a simulation, and we do it competitively. And so we can do that with a you know a class of a hundred students. Uh, but, wow! But I really struggle with how <laughs> you know how how do we bring board games into that application with so many students to teach. Yeah. So tell me and, and, and the listeners, what uh, courses are you teaching? What disciplines? Well, so I teach about 300 students every quarter. I teach uh, basic finance, so what we refer to as enterprise finance. And so I, uh, I teach that uh, in basically two classes a quarter, and then I teach one class a quarter in a graduate study. So either portfolio management, asset management, I also mm -hmm. teach a class in energy finance, and, and those come out of my background personally. I, I'm not a professional educator. I've worked in trading and, and management for my career, so that's what I do and what I teach. But having a love for history and and uh, and certainly board games, I, I'm jealous of those that uh, that get to lecture on history instead of uh, <laughs> instead of financial products. Well, I, I have to I have to say I would prefer history over finance, at which I'm terrible. But uh, it does seem like finance is something that is potentially gameable anyway. And you know, when one thinks of uh, you know some classic games like Sid Saxon's Acquire or something, and I you know I, I I'm curious to know if uh, you see potential for gamifying your classrooms with board games. Well, well, there there is. I, I when I was at MIT, I had an economics professor that used uh, games built around paper clips, and he would hand paper clips out to the class and ask them to trade them under certain conditions. And it was a terrific application, very simple, uh, very thoughtful. But uh, you know, I've learned over time that sometimes the simplest thing is the hardest to design, and and uh, so I really admire <laughs> I admire his his games in that regard. You know, one of the things we we struggle with uh, with such large class sizes at UC San Diego is is just the touch, right? Uh, teaching students how to in interact with each other, how to yeah. um, how to talk to each other, 
how to negotiate, uh, how to collaborate. And, yeah. and so I think there's a lot of potential for that in, in some regard, but I, I'm afraid we may have to simplify and make, make our own models uh, to do that. The Mark Strat, for example, uh, you know, applies to a lot of students, but it's very easy for a student to do it non-collaboratively, uh, which is counter to what we really want to happen. Yeah, but it strikes me in, uh, as an accomplished designer yourself, I mean, the, the challenge of designing a classroom game is is uh, probably not that much different from designing a tabletop game. Um, it's just the parameters are different, right? So you got to figure out how to make this work with 100 people instead of four, right. or you have to figure out how to create a, uh, a system for interaction that might not be there uh, in a tabletop game. Um, so I'm just, I'm just curious about, it seems to me that the, the possibilities are there. It's just about kind of bending our minds around stretching what we know into uh, realms that are new for games. And as mentioned, I, I went to a technical school, MIT, so I'm not very good at bending my mind. Yeah, yeah. No one, no one graduates from MIT without thinking real hard, though. So, uh, and and we've seen we've seen the effects of uh, of your education in liberty or death. So I, I think you're on pretty safe ground. You're very kind, but let me uh, let me turn the podcast back on you. And uh, <laughs> and, and uh, how the the listeners I think would be very interested in the universe of games that you're using in your class and sure. uh, and how you use those. So I, I chose six games, um, actually seven games for this class. Um, and the criteria were that they had to be either in print or readily available. They had to be multiplayer um, and they had to be rich enough to support some kind of historical claims. So the games we used were, um, we started with uh, Christopher Ponce's 2011 design called Colonial Europe's Empires Overseas, which is, I think, a little bit of a sleeper. I don't know how many folks know it, but, um, you know, it's down there ranked in the thousands and on Board Game Geek. But it's really an elegant and beautiful design. And there's a historical scenario that lets players take on roles of uh, prominent European powers. So that was where we started. Then we went with a little gem called Liberty or Death about the American Revolution. Um, yeah, we might talk about that in a little more detail later. Um, third game was Founding Fathers by Christian Leonhard and Jason Matthews, um, which is about the Constitutional Convention of 1787, where players get to effectively sort of design their own constitution. Uh, that that was I can reflect on on our experience with all these, but I'll just sort of lay them out right now. The next beat was Frontier Exploration, and for this we had two games by the same designer. This guy Cedric Chabossi, uh, he did um, Lewis and Clark in 2013, and then he did Discoveries in 2015. And so what we had were two tabletop euros by the same designer around the same historical theme, but with wildly different mechanics. So that was a really uh, a nice moment for students to compare some games. Uh, then we focused on the anti-slavery struggle with Brian Mayer's Freedom, the Underground Railroad. Uh, that's a game that's near and dear to my heart because my research specialty is the African-American protest tradition before the Civil War. So that's very close to what I work on. Right. 
And then we wind, wound up with Alex Bogosi's Divided Republic, which was, uh, I wanted an election game in there. And this is an election game about the election of 1860. Um, and and it, because the election of 1860 was, Unlike most other U.S. elections, a four-handed affair, it made for a really good uh, final game for us. Uh, I think it's a flawed game in some ways, but it's uh, it was also very useful. So those were our those were our six beats and the seven games that went with them. It's interesting that you en- you mentioned uh, Divided Republic because Alex Bogosi lives here in San Diego. He's a good friend of mine. Oh, and, no kidding. And and a, a, a great thinker. So I think he'll be very excited to know that you use uh, Divided Republic. Yeah, it was it was a it was a uh, it was a very rich it was a game that gave you a lot of feel for that election. And it's it, it that, that's such as it's a fascinating and interesting moment to teach because it was such an unusual election. Uh and so being able to convey something of that um, and to convey to students something about the way American elections work, where we have these uh, winner take all districts um, uh, and, and there's there's a lot of them, of course, in presidential elections, everyone's battling for these different ele- uh, electoral districts. And um, uh, that game just did a really beautiful job of um, introducing students to that whole process. There's an old Parker Brothers game called Landslide from like 1972, and that's where I that's where I, that's how I learned about American elections. So <laughs> I, I wanted an election game in there. That's terrific. Well, that that's a great one, and um, I have been pestering him for a number of years to do the uh, hypothetical election of if the North did not win or came to an agreement with the South and split off, what the next oh, yeah. election would be like. I think that would be fascinating, but. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that would be great. I'll I'll continue to push on that, but but it's a terrific game, and I, I as I think about that game, some of the accommodations to history comes from the fact that as designers we have to create a game that is fun, right? And sometimes we sacrifice the history to create fun, and that doesn't necessarily achieve your goals in class. Yeah, it's a really great point. And, uh, uh, you know, in listening to your um, previous podcast with uh, Martin Wallace and and, and others, uh, you know, you, you hear designers speaking about this very thing all the time. Um, uh, and so in the same way that Hollywood feature films have to do certain things to the past in order to make the thing that they are. Um, game designers probably have to have to mangle the past or work with it in challenging ways. Um, you know, in, 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 in Hollywood feature films, we tend to get stories of underdogs, you know, David's overcoming Goliath. Usually it's about the people winning over the interests in some ways. Um, and and sometimes you have to you have to to do some real shoehorning to make that work. Um, uh, my favorite example of this is in the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. How do you make a South Carolina slaveholder a sympathetic figure? Well, you 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 do this thing where Benjamin Martin has given up his slaves and pays them wages, which I guarantee you, no revolutionary era South Carolina planter even contemplated. Right. Um, so you know, and there's this always happens in the movies, and we come to accept that there's a certain amount of that. Although I I, I think we need to be a little uh, we need to stay on our toes about what's real and what's not. 
Um, but I, I think that the game designers must feel similar kinds of pressure, um, though it comes from different places. Um, you know, how do you how do you and ba play balance is obviously one of these one of these uh, key moments. How do you not every uh, conflict in history was balanced. So how do you build balance into a system that was inherently unbalanced? Your game, I think, does a particularly good job of this as uh, uh, students commented on this quite a bit, you know, that, that uh, you know, for, for most of the games we played, students complain, well, you can't really win history and these situations aren't really reducible to this thing, uh, to, 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 to win, winning and losing. But the way you describe the victory conditions in Liberty or Death is, um, accounts for this. So your description of, of what a Native American victory actually means is, is, uh, is quite limited, you know, and you're sort of the way you described it, it's like, well, look, everything is gonna get really bad no matter what happens right. to the Indians. Um, but that's an important thing, I think, for, for game designers to do is to remind us that even if, even if we've sort of created a, some artificial symmetry in this game, we can at least peg it or reference it to the fact that history might not have played out so wonderfully for everybody. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to some degree, we, we look at these games as puzzles um, and, and it's not a popular way to think of, to talk about it, but frankly, uh, to many gamers, these are puzzles, and uh, yeah. and and you know we we play them over and over. As Martin Wallace said in history, you really only get a chance to play it once. Yes, uh, I thought that was really wise. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was poignant, yes, and and but but the puzzle aspect, right? We we keep going back, and so it's nice to have a firm conclusion. And sometimes we confuse that firm conclusion with whoever won or lost the war. And I uh, you know I think in in hindsight. Um, the Americans won a decisive victory, but I'm not sure it felt like a decisive victory in 1781 or 1782. Or um, even 1784, right. you know, like with the, the, the Shays Rebellion. I mean, there's this sort of the, the victory for the Americans meant this catastrophic financial collapse that uh, almost created a civil war. So, um, right. And, and at that time, we're still we're still 13 colonies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 one of my, one of my design dreams is to design a counterfactual game about 1787, where the Constitutional Convention fails, and uh, the Hamiltonian nightmare of 13 separate republics uh, is played out. What would that, what would that look like with the, you know, the, the, the British and the Spanish on the frontier and the French lurking nearby. And uh, it, I think that would be a, a fascinating exercise. Yeah, I agree. There, there's so many extraordinary things that happened from, you know, the end of the French Indian War to where we are today to make the United States what it is. It, it, it's just impossible to, to really create a simulation of that, right? It's like uh, some yeah. designer once explained uh, the Battle of Midway. I asked Jack Green, why don't we simulate the Battle of Midway? Why aren't there better simulations of that that really track? And he said, because it, it's it, it's such an extraordinary outcome, right? For us to find the Chinese, <laughs> the Japanese carriers at the time and yeah. for us to find them loaded with planes on deck and for us right. to place the bombs at the right time, it's, it's all extraordinary. You, you just can't simulate that in the game. And, right. uh, and I right. think the American Revolution and what followed is, is much the same. It really is an amazing set of incredible positive events. 
Yeah, yeah, and and not not easily simulable and something you'd actually want to play. I mean, Austerlitz is like this. Uh, you know, there's a, a battle built on 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 deception and fainting uh, that in, in retrospect, or even with a little bit better information, the Allies should never have fallen into. Um, how do you how do you design a game that takes into account? Um, uh, that sort of basic imbalance in the in in, in, in the system that's that, that's a real that's a real challenge. Right, right. It makes for a great story and not such a great simulation because you know you need to roll a six, then you need to roll another six, then you need to roll another six, and <laughs> and, and then it will exactly. simulate the battle. Yes. What we're talking about essentially are counterfactuals, and this is this is the thing that games have that movies don't have, that historical fiction doesn't have, that um, and that that historians actually tend to shy away from. I mean, most professional scholars are are not fans of doing counterfactual history, but this is the one thing that is required in a game. That that you know, because of course, if a if a game were to play out with the the same conclusion every time, you wouldn't want to play it anymore. So it's built in. To a uh, uh, to 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 games that they have to end in different ways, so they are uh, extraordinary mechanisms if they're built right for exploring counterfactual possibilities. Well, that's always been my question about history, and maybe you can help me think through this now. I, in in finance, right? In in practice, we model continually, and we model different outcomes, and we model, and and of course, we're forecasting, right? We're not modeling history, but we are using history to, to predict to some extent. But in history, it doesn't seem that we do that sort of modeling. We don't do that sort of sandboxing. Um, yeah, we say we don't. We And, you know, uh, there are... It's not hard to find professional scholars who uh, will criticize counterfactual thinking as sloppy or trivial or something, and and it certainly can be. I mean, if you, uh, I have an old gaming friend who who continually argues the point that F-15s could not shoot Sopwith camels out of the air because <laughs> they're too fast or some silliness like this. And uh, I mean, there there are some some counterfactual scenarios that are that are silly. But to imagine uh, plausible counterfactuals is actually built into what we do. Um, whenever historians are making judgments about about the past, they're they are making uh, often making implicit counterfactual claims. So um, uh, you know if 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 Polk hadn't have won the election of eighteen forty four, which was entirely possible given that a third party anti-slavery candidate split, New York's vote and gave New York to the Democrat. Um, uh, it's it's entirely plausible to uh, explore what a uh, a clay victory what might have meant in 1844. So I think that the truth and what I've learned from this course and from playing historical games is that um, history is actually a lot more counterfactual than most uh, history scholars would care to admit. And I'm not a history scholar, but but it would seem that. Um... That that even playing through in a you know a theatrical sense some of these some of the narratives some of the dialogue I think particularly of the French and the Patriots during the American Revolution we have a very romantic recollection of the them working together but I think there's great evidence in history that they didn't agree and and we we can't imagine you know the the narrative from 
the American history perspective, or at least what we learned in elementary and middle school, was that uh, Washington said, let's march here or there, and the French said, we're in. But I, I'm not sure that a sovereign nation uh, would have listened to the leader of a small army for a group of colonies in, in, in that way. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the, these were all folks playing a, a game of great powers. And, uh, you know, I, 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 one of the things I love about liberty or death is that the West Indies is included. And, you know, we got to remember that two years after Yorktown, they were still fighting this thing. And it was all about the Brits taking back those West Indian possessions they had lost to the French Navy. Um, so uh, I, I, I think you make a really important point with that game. And I, I am going to flip this around on you because I, I don't have too many opportunities to ask you these kinds questions. How, how, in retrospect, how do you feel about the way, like it, Liberty or Death is beautiful because of the way it builds into its kind of player position, architecture and victory conditions, um, those distinct French interests. So I, I'm sort of curious now in retrospect, how how you assess the argument that you made. Are you are you happy with it? Would you change it in any way? It's a snapshot of a view. and And so I don't know that I would change it, but I think there are different ways to model it. The tough part about the American Revolution for me was always, if you look at it in the context of the world and the conflict between the British and the French, it was a sideline. Uh, it was a, a relatively minor sideline. Uh, the British put an incredible amount of effort into it. Of course, they don't want to set the standard that they'll release the colonies with a small crisis. Uh, but um, the French and the British both thought that the West Indies were more important than the American colonies. Uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah. so, so, you know, and, and economically that's the case. I mean, frankly, the, the you know, when you look at the rum trade, uh, mm -hmm. economically, the West Indies may have been more important to cities like Boston than the British. Yeah. They, I mean, there, there, there are 13 British colonies out there that did not go along with those mainland 13. And, uh, notably the, the, it was the, it was the, uh, the intensive slave-oriented exploitation colonies of the Caribbean that needed that British support, needed that military support to police their own slave populations that I think uh, kept them from, um, uh, from taking too much of these stirrings of liberty from the mainland and kept them oriented toward the, the crown. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's an amazing, it, it was an incredible time. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to have to make the choices that people made in modeling it. I thought it was as important, uh, the alignment of the population as it was the military disposition across the colonies. And, and that's where, you know, I, I walk in the footsteps of greatness, Volko's model, uh, that, that I first saw with Andy and Abyss when I first got back into the, into the hobby is an extraordinary model and allowed me to apply not necessarily an insurgency model, although I think it was an insurgency. I mean, you, you talk about the use of things like uh, riding people out on a rail and tar and feathering. I, you know, it, that's insurgent behavior. Really yeah, I, I, I mean, look, I, I will be, be, be honest. Liberty or Death was uh, the game that really made me want to do this class. And it and wow. the reason why was that um, for years I've been teaching uh, John Shy's uh, take on the revolution. And he so he wrote an essay. It was published in 1973 mm -hmm. called uh, the military uh, American Revolution, military conflict considered as a revolutionary war. So he's writing it in the midst of Vietnam. And what he, he you know, Shy is a, a great scholar. I think he's written on 
uh, a lot. Uh, uh, people aren't as numerous. Workout. Yeah, and so his 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 take uh, in 1973 it was to was to demonstrate. Uh, how an insurgent war is, what the architecture of an insurgent war is. And the, his point was that in the same way that, that we are fighting in, in Vietnam, the Vietnam is a war of insurgency, we all accept that, so is the American Revolution. Um, so to, to, and it's a position that, you know, some other scholars have, have, um, uh, have picked up on, but it's not a dominant interpretation, it's just a provocative one that's out there. And so to, to see a game that, almost exactly models the argument that this guy was trying to make, I thought was just astounding. And I thought, well, okay, I, this is a course I can run now because I have at least one game that makes an argument that uh, <laughs> other scholars have made. Wow, well, you're, you're, you're very kind. But the centerpiece is, is uh, you know, is the the manipulation of of, of popular opinion. And, right. uh, you know, that and this is something that games rarely, um, they tell you what a victory condition is, but they don't necessarily help you understand why that was a victory condition. So, you know, some of the old SPI hex encounter things, it's about sort of capturing a particular point on the map and, and that's that's great. But what what liberty or death helps us understand, what the whole coin system helps us understand, uh, maybe the exception of falling sky, is is how important kind of popular assent is to keeping armies on the battlefield um, that, that uh, and this is of course true of the American Civil War and, and any other war fought in a democratic society and many fought even not in democratic societies. War is expensive and it's risky and it takes an awful lot to uh, create, maintain and use armies in the field. Uh, and if you do not have popular assent for that enterprise, it is gonna be difficult uh, or next to impossible to actually do. So. What we're, we get here in a game like Liberty or Death is um, an understanding and appreciation of this aspect of warfare that is almost entirely absent in most other game simulations of war. Right, and I, I, I think that, that that's changing, right? I think that this is a stage of development, and I think Volko's work uh, with the coin system and, and uh, starting with Andy and Abyss is, is changing the way we think about these conflicts. And... Uh, and what yeah. they are, and and you know, it goes back to this: the argument that I hate the most amongst war gamers is what's a war game? Yeah, um, and and frankly, I don't I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I, I yeah. to, to me, it, uh, these are these are conflict simulations or simulations of situations, and 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 if I'm interested in it, I'm interested. I don't really care if there's a tank counter or not, uh, or mm -hmm. or a, or an army to fight. I agree. I I and I, I mean my. I was always got sort of frustrated with the 30th Jim Dunnigan design, you know, as, as, as much of a genius as, as he was the, the sort of it, there's so many hex encounter war games and they all sort of rift off of each other in some ways. And uh, this one's got morale rules and this one it's really about supply, but, but they're all basically built around, around battle simulations. Um, and what is intriguing me now is the way that, the 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 richness and the complexity and the depth of military simulations are combining now with the themes of euros which tend to be less strictly military and sometimes even 
encountering social themes. So, um, the, the, the way those two are feeding off of each other is uh, is beautiful. And I think that it portends for some really incredible historical game designs that might not necessarily be confined to wars. Agreed. So a bright, bright future is predicted. And I'm, I'm with you on that. So in that context, what uh, what are your plans for the future? You mentioned uh, another another session of the seminar. Yeah, um, I, I created a, a blog on Board Game Geek called Ludica, and uh, uh, I've started to do some videos for that. So we're <clears throat> going to continue to try to build out that that enterprise, and it's really just talking about games, but in a way that. Um, uh, tries to focus on the ways that games make historical arguments, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, so our next project, um, I've got I've got three class assists right here near campus, and uh, so the next thing I want to do for for Ludica is record a session of Falling Sky, the coin game, and mm-hmm. uh, and get these uh, professors to talk about what works and, uh, uh, and and what kind of job the game might do when they're uh, as a teacher. Wow. Um, so we'll see if we can't figure out how to get that game into classrooms. Um, the other thing that's rolling around in my mind. I, I'm an amateur game designer, never had anything published. Um, and, but I would, I, would, I would love to do a game on reconstruction, right? A game on the, right. on the decade after the American Civil War, which I, I think has been vastly undertreated uh, in, uh, in board games. Uh, are you aware of any games that actually deal with that period? Nothing comes to mind. Yeah, but it's it's a great. I mean, there, there's a, a plausible argument to be made that the Civil War doesn't really end until 1877, when the uh, Republicans are kicked out of the White House as well as every Southern state house. Um, so there's a there's a, a a very interesting element of political and social conflict as well as small scale military conflict uh, in those years, and uh, I think it would be really, really interesting to do a, a sort of a a treatment of that that somewhere hovers between Alex Bogosi and the coin series. Good. Well, we'll look forward to that uh, and let us know what we can do to help uh, help you sure. think through it. So let's transition to the informal, uh, Patrick, if you don't mind. And I'll first ask you, what kind of music do you listen to? What kind of music? Um, Mostly, I still listen to all the Beatles and classic rock that I grew up on. Uh, a lot of that sort of '80s punk and new wave stuff. Uh, nowadays, uh, I'm listening to a lot more jazz. But uh, the one I wanted to share with you was I discovered this German avant rock band uh, from the early '70s called Can, which I had never heard of, and that stuff is pretty cool. And I can't get it out of my mind, so that's what I keep playing. I will send you a link. What about um, movies, television, that sort of thing? Uh, let's see. Well, I just saw I saw 
Ready Player One and Deadpool Two recently. Those were both <laughs> pretty uh, entertaining. Uh, Deadpool is not for the whole family, but it was right. definitely if you're ready to step up your superhero game, that's pretty good. Um, in terms of TV, uh, speaking of superheroes, uh, we just finished the Jessica Jones, which is a really interesting, very dark and sort of dark take on so whole superhero phenomenon. Yes. Um, and the way that that series sort of uh, deals with the dramatic reality of actually having, you know, some kind of special abilities in this society, I thought was was very, was very smart. And the responsibilities, so yes. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's the old Peter Parker thing with great power comes great responsibilities. And this is a series that really, really teases that out. Yes. Um, so that's been fun. And um, I've been watching The Terror, which is about uh, the 1845 Franklin expedition to the Arctic to find the Northwest Passage. Mm -hmm. And all these guys get uh, get ice bound and um, their food supply runs out and they start getting scurvy. And it's just this uh, it, it's uh, built on Dan Simmons novel, uh, uh, which is just a, a really great piece of historical fiction. So I recommend that as well. What about reading? I'm sure you have quite the book list. Yeah, well, mostly I read, I read for, for work. So, um, you know, obviously a lot of scholarship and in, in African American history and American history. Um, uh, apart from that, um, uh, what's, what's good. So, I mean, if, if, and if anyone's interested in, in reading some good books about, about slavery and race in American history, um, Ed Baptist, the half has never been told is a really, uh, a harrowing book about sort of overview of slavery. Um, there's a book by Ibram Kendi called stamped from the beginning, which is a, about the history of racial ideas in America. And there's a good one on the abolitionist movement by Manisha Sinha called the slaves cause. So, uh, a lot of that straight history, um, lighter history is uh, a little more accessible. Um, there's a guy named Roger Crowley. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He does a lot of writing about the uh, early modern Mediterranean I'm not. book on like the siege of Malta. Uh, it, it's it's uh, He's such an amazingly effective writer. This stuff reads like novels. It's just real page turners, but it's all it's all history. So uh, big thumbs up for Roger Crowley. So when you're not lecturing or researching or or teaching games, uh, what what do you play in your free time? Yeah, we're, we, I'm, I'm blessed with a, uh, a nice large crowd of gamers around here. We've got a really nice community and, and it sort of shifts in and out. So, you know, on, on, um, on nights where the crowd is larger and there might be a more mixed bunch of players where, you know, we do the social deduction games, Secret Hitler, uh, which is a sort of a weird game, but it's a, it's a good social yeah, deduction good, game. Good fun. Yeah, um, we've been playing Pandemic Legacy and working through getting our butts kicked, unfortunately, but giving it a try. Um, and then we've got sort of subgroups. There are uh, some war gamey types. I, I tend not to be a straight war gamer. I'm sort of getting into it more and more because of the um, historical avenues. Um, but we've got some some folks who are who are uh, a good old fashioned hex encounter war gamers. Um, uh, the only, and, and of course there's all the, the euros, you know, the, the Martin Wallace, Rhino Canizia, Virala Serta stuff is always popular. 
Um, I, I don't know about you, but I just get so overwhelmed with the sheer amount of product out there that it gets kind of hard to figure out what what new things to uh, to explore. Agreed, and so many and so many games that uh, I haven't played from history. <laughs> uh, you know, it just it just continually builds the long list of games I'd like to play. Well, there's games like Scythe and Gloomhaven that uh, I've read about, but but for some re- one reason or another just didn't get on the bandwagon. And um, you know, sometimes I I I read later reviews of those games, and uh, not necessarily those, but. Um, you know, there's just a certain amount of hype, and and there's so when there's so much product out there, it's it's uh, it's hard. I think I suspect that there's a, are a lot of sleepers that very few of us have played that are wonderful games that uh, just don't get the credit they deserve. So uh, I, I get I'm, I'm not so worried about making sure that I stay on top of every new thing because I I suspect that there's an awful lot of good stuff that's uh, already been published. Agreed. And that's one of the benefits, I think, of, of the growth of the hobby and technology is that uh, we, we are getting a lot of content of people reviewing games and documenting and talking about what they find. And, uh, you know, we can find a few people that we trust and, and, and it makes it much easier to pick uh, a good game, I think, now than it used to be. Yeah, that's true. Although one of the frustrating things is if I if you if you miss getting on something like if you miss kickstarting something and then it and then it it, it goes away and doesn't get printed again, then then I'm always kicking myself for for having missed something like that. But uh, but but there's there's always something awesome to play. That is true. Right. Well, and the first rule of economics is that uh, uh, you can always buy something. It's just a question of the price. <laughs> well said. So, so uh, with that, Patrick, uh, I'll, I'll I'll say thank you. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, appreciate the kind words uh, for liberty or death. But most of all, I appreciate you advancing the ball for, for so many of us that want to use board games to teach. And uh, I think that there'll be great interest. And I also hope that uh, you capture these lessons that you mentioned, uh, these first time bumps in the road, because... I think we'll find after this podcast that others will want to take the same road and, and may benefit from that. Well, I know that I'm not blazing the trail. I'm following others who've already done this kind of thing, but I'm happy to, to share what I learn. And uh, I want to thank you for this podcast and for making a, a great game and for staying engaged with people who are, uh, who are using your game in very practical ways. I recently attended the graduation of my middle daughter from Pomona College. The keynote address was delivered by Harvard professor Danielle Allen. She spoke about the Declaration of Independence. I thought it was interesting enough to share with you here. So here's the shortest lesson there is. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government 
laying its foundation on such principle and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Tell the truth. Did you remember it was that long? <laughs> it's not just about individual rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It moves from those rights to the notion that government is something that we build together to secure our safety and happiness. And were you listening closely? We have two jobs. Lay the foundation on principle. Clarify your values. Know what you stand for. And organize the powers of government to secure those rights, to affect our safety and happiness. The best we can do is figure out what is most likely to affect our safety and happiness. We make probabilistic judgments. We make mistakes. We have to enter into the business of democratic agency with humility. And this job of laying the foundation of principle and connecting it to how we organize the powers of government entails two important things. That foundation of principle, what does it amount to? The sentence gives us some ideas. It says, we all have these rights among which, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Among which, it's examples, people. <laughs> it's not a complete list. The job of thinking is not done. It is your job, all right? Clarify your values. Maybe you care about sustainability. Maybe you care about gender equality. Maybe you care about free markets and capitalism, but connect them to the basic question of what is good for our community together. A shared story. And then don't forget, Activism is valuable, no question about it. But our job at the end of the day is to build institutions that secure our shared rights. That means understanding the user manual, all right? The institutions. And yes, we can alter them. They're not given in perpetuity. Originalism is about understanding democratic empowerment which is about recognizing that democratic citizens build and change their world. All right? If you lay the foundation on principle, that requires talking to each other and everybody else and figure out how to organize the powers of government, understand the user manual well enough to use it and modify it. All right. So I'll leave you again with my last lesson for you for your civic preparation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among people, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principle and organizing its power in such form as to us shall seem most likely to effect our safety 
and happiness. Congratulations, class of 2018. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the San Francisco band, the Jeff Denson Trio. For the intro and outro music, check them out at jeffdenson.com. Do me the favor of sharing the podcast with a few friends. That'll help get the word out. And I'll close with a special thanks to Patrick Rail. And that's it for me. As always, I seem most likely to affect our safety, and I'll be back soon.